Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Welcome. Welcome to our opening event of our Examining Populism series, which I am organizing together with Christian Flaxland. I am Hanna Schwander, Professor of Public Policy here at the Hertie School of Governance. And today we talk about the rise of populism and the European elections, consequences and causes for the expected surge of right-wing but also left-wing populism. And I'm very happy that we have two very distinguished guests to discuss this subject with you. Um, this is Daphne Halikiopoulou from the University of Reading. She's an associate professor of comparative politics. She has worked extensively on issues of nationalism, the politics of, of identity, far-right extremism, far-right populism, and she's also an editor of the Nation, Nation and Nationalism Journal. Niklas Anzinger is a former Hertie student, a Hertie alumni. Uh, he works for Dahlia Research, so he's there responsible for uh, end-client relationship and strategic research. So he has a lot of expertise on polling, and he will tell us uh, how these forecasts in which we have from the polls, how that reflects sort of um, to, to Daphne's talk. Thank you. And with this, the floor is yours. Okay, hello everyone. I hope you can hear that. Thank you to both very much for inviting me to be here. I'm delighted to be here and I love Berlin as well. So it's great to spend a day here. Also, I just learned that I'm introducing, I'm starting this whole populism series. So wow. Um, yeah, no pressure on me. So... As Hannah was saying, I want to talk a little bit today. I was invited here to talk about the rise of populism. I want to particularly talk about far-right populism or right-wing populism in Europe and um, the impending uh, European Parliament elections coming up in uh, next month, actually, in, in May. I want to do three things today. I want to first look into the phenomenon itself that we're trying to explain or examine, so populism and specifically far-right populism. Secondly, I want to look at the causes of this phenomenon. And then thirdly, I will address the consequences for Europe and more broadly for our lives, because this is a really important issue. The, the overall argument that will underpin my talk is that unlike a lot of existing explanations that tend to attribute this phenomenon to a cultural backlash. I want to put forward a more sort of complex um, explanation that takes into account both demand and supply side dynamics. I want to argue that in terms of demand, it is both economic insecurity as well as cultural insecurity that drive this phenomenon. And in terms of supply, it is the ability of these parties to use a more appealing and attractive form of nationalism that basically taps into different into the into the insecurities of different social groups so what really explains this rise in a nutshell for me is that on the demand side level we have many different types of social groups and at the supply side level we have parties that have been able to appeal to all of them to they have been able to expand beyond their secure voting base precisely by appearing to be attractive to different social uh, social groups so just to begin, the rise of populism, you've heard it everywhere. I was just telling Hannah I've been involved in this project that The Guardian did on the new populism. So I'll 
I'll, um, I'll show it here. Um, what do we mean when we talk about populism? This is a really contentious term. I just want to, I don't want to go into the contention. I just want to specify what I'll be talking about. So one in four Europeans vote populist, but what does that really mean? When we say populist, we mean essentially parties or political groups that make a distinction between the us, the good people, and them, the corrupt elites. But obviously that's a very broad category because what party doesn't talk about the people in a democratic context, right? So all parties would say something about, about the people. So then populism, we can enrich this, this understanding by, by defining it as political parties or groups that um, basically put forward agendas and ideas that, are co that contradict liberal democratic processes. Look at the UK and Brexit, for example. So look at the, the urgency with which Brexit has sought to bypass various checks and balances posed by the parliament. So it is the will of the people should be implemented. And that is often so as per Riker, for example, against liberal democratic processes. Then we have far right populism, which we can add a different, a new dimension, the nation. So insiders versus outsiders. And we also have left populism, which is um, basically the, this economic exploitation class um, kind of dimension. So if we look at, um, just to give you an idea, basically populism, or I prefer, I was just saying, I actually prefer to use the categories far left, far right, because I think they're more useful, but I will use them here interchangeably with far right populism just for the purpose of the talk. Um, again, in the Guardian, Guardian project, we can see that from 1998 until 2018, both populists from the far right and the far left have increased their support um, across Europe. And that is particularly true of the far right, of parties on the far right. Now, I think in a way that that is sort of paradoxical, because if we look at what's happened in Europe lately, the economic crisis that has meant to trigger support for anti-establishment parties should have caused more rise of the far left. People should have been more concerned about the material conditions. But no, paradoxically, it is the rise of the far right that has been more appealing. If we, just to give you also an idea of um, recently, you must have heard, so the 2017 elections across Europe were um, a earthquake also elections. Um, the far right did really well. So here I can just give you an example of various elections that took place in European countries during 2017. You can see the FPO, for example, did really well. Here in Germany, you now have the AFD that is also uh, doing really well. The Norwegian Progress Party um, is in a coalition government. And of course, Marine Le Pen made it to the second round of the French presidential election. Okay. Um, the PVV in the Netherlands, many other parties in UKIP, in, in the UK, sorry, UKIP actually declined, but that has a lot to do, according to a lot of analysts, with the fact that the party um, basically got what it wanted, it got, they got Brexit, and now actually these ideas are um, better incorporated by the Tories. So that's an, an explanation. So we have a rise. Now I have, um, maybe this will give you a better, better, bigger picture. This is the, how these parties, the, 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 uh, as the slide shows how these parties have fared in European Parliament elections, because this is 
actually what I'll be talking about today, how they fared in 2009 and then 2014. Again, you must have heard the description of the 2014 European Parliament elections as earthquake elections, precisely because they, they showed they were the beginning for many scholars of this phenomenon. So we can see that many of these parties did really well. The FPO in Austria, it got 19.5%. Um, in Scandinavia, you can see in Denmark, the Danish People's Party, 26.6%. Um, UKIP, 26.77%. And in Greece, the Golden Dawn, we did have a discussion as to whether this can be characterised as populist. But I don't know if you're familiar is anyone familiar here with the Greek Golden Dawn? Does anyone know? A little bit. Okay, just to give you an idea, so these people are currently in prison and, and undergoing trial for m murder, grievous bodily harm, and maintaining a criminal organization. They walk around the city with clubs uh, covered with the Greek flag and basically harm her immigrants. Yet they are also representatives in the parliament. They got quite... Um, a lot of votes in 2012 and again 2015. So we have 18 of them at the moment in a parliament of 300. So yes, this is a broad, I'm giving you a very broad spectrum from the more moderate UKIP to the more extreme Golden Dawn. But here we're talking about a phenomenon where parties that basically emphasize the exclusion of the other and offer nationalist solutions to every possible societal problem. These kinds of parties are doing really well, both in their national electoral arenas, but also in the European electoral arena. Now, I do want to flag, because I'll be discussing it a bit later on as well, that although the 2014 elections were earthquake elections, some of these parties actually declined. Okay, so it wasn't a linear increase for everyone. So in Austria, we'll see the FPO doing really well, but the Bezador, another far-right party, actually declined in support. Um, in, in, in Belgium, the Vlaams Belang didn't do as well. In Greece, Laos, which is actually a moderate far-right party. So what you see is a pattern. The extremes did really well. The more moderate did really poorly. But in the UK, you see the opposite pattern. The more extreme BNP did poorly, but the more moderate sort of populist um, UKIP did really well. So I think what I want to take from this before I move on to, to, to showing you some more recent data and explaining the phenomenon is that we have, we have a phenomenon. It's very broad. We have parties that are anti-establishment and for the people focusing on excluding the other, focusing on, on various dimensions of exclusion with different types of narratives doing, having varied success. So I think these pictures show more puzzles than they do linear sort of trends. And this is what I will try to explain. But before I do, let's see last slide here on, on, on the phenomenon itself. What we are expecting to see in the European Parliament uh, elections next month. So I don't know, again, if you're at all familiar with the composition of the parliament. These parties are divided into different groups. So we see them, so the, the, the groups that the far-right parties belong to are the ones on the right here, the ECR, European Conservatives um, and Reformists. We also have the um, Europe for Freedom, the EFDD, Europe for Freedom uh, and Direct Democracy Group, and also the ENF, um, European, Europe of Nations um, 
and Europe of Nations and Freedom. So they are sort of divided between these kinds of groups. Uh, some of them are also unaffiliated, like the Golden Donks. Nobody wants to have them in their group. Surprise, surprise. So um, you will see here that there, there is a big, big increase expected, especially among the ENF uh, grouping parties. And that is because we're expecting a, a big, big rise in Italy, um, and so we're expecting some countries to actually drag that result. So there is going to be a, a, a rise. You see that there's 41 seats currently in the ENF. They're expecting 59, right? So we know that these parties are going to do well. Why? Why is this happening? And what are we going to do about it? What does this mean for Europe? Now, what I've done for the rest of my talk to address why is I've put together different um, aspects of my research. So everything that I will tell you today is actually part of my own research from different papers and different, so I've kind of collaged it uh, to put forward one clear argument. So, especially in the UK, I'm not sure if this is so much the trend in academia here in Germany, but in the UK, it's very, very much the trend in academic circles now to say, well, the rise of this far-right populism, it's a new phenomenon, it's a linear phenomenon, and it's really the new nationalism. It is the increase of, it is the, rather the response of of, 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 a, of a cultural backlash. It is, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with David Goodhart's book, The Somewheres and the, and the Nowheres, right? So it is basically a new cleavage is now happening in the world and in Europe. And this cleavage, unlike the old cleavage that basically divided people in terms of class or in terms of haves and have nots, this new cleavage now divides people between the somewheres and the nowheres, right? Between those who want to keep their um, national identity and the, 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 the features, the, the cultural characteristics of their, of their nation intact, and those who are more globalized, the transnational elites that basically uh, are in favor of globalization. So this is what is happening now, and this is why this solves the puzzle, right? So why would, as I said earlier, when I started, why would we be expecting to see, why are we seeing the rise of the far right, whereas we have economic crisis and malaise and discontent? Well, we have it because people are more discontent about increasing immigration. We, this is what these people say. We have it because now people are more discontent about losing their national identity than they are about having economic problems. How do we know this empirically? We know this because we see that anti-immigrant attitudes are the key driver of support for the far right. We know this because the people who, the, the profile of the far right or the far right populist voter is, is someone with authoritarian values um, who basically identifies along the tan axis. It is usually people with lower levels of education. Okay, so it is basically, the, so the answer to the question is, why are we seeing this? We're seeing this because it is value driven. And we know we, know we are right because we see anti-immigration attitudes and values as the key drivers of support. I beg to differ. So I, I'm not saying that cultural values, etc., are not important, but I'm saying, I, I, I think that if we focus only on that, we miss the bigger picture. Values only, or anti-immigration only, is, is not the sole driver. So I, I think, that it, what is in terms of demand, what is going on is that these parties, as I said earlier, have managed 
to basically expand their support way beyond the secure voting base. It's obvious. I think that's a very simple point. It's not possible to expect only one, one social group to vote for a party and that party will do really well and get 30%. That's not possible. You need to forge a coalition between different social groups and these social groups are very likely to have different preferences. So they have been able to expand beyond their secure voting base precisely by tapping into different forms of societal insecurity. Now, number one, that is got to do with the economy as well. And I think, as a lot of scholars have also emphasized, this culture versus economy is very much a false dichotomy. It, it, obviously, if you have cultural, the reason why you might have some cultural um, insecurities has also a lot to do with where you, who you are, your contextual characteristics, where you grew up, what your education levels are, how much money you have, what your income is, etc. These things should not be separated. So along the lines of Creasy or some other scholars, I will argue that it's actually two dimensions of contestation. The economy matters as much as cultural insecurity. And I'll show you some data in a minute that immigration is the best example of this. The literature that I described earlier tends to assume that immigration is a cultural variable. So they say, okay, people with, um, with uh, negative um, positions on immigration vote for the far right, therefore, ah, it's, the reason is culture. But immigration has very much also an economic dimension. There is competition in the labor market. Um, the reasons that people might oppose immigration. There's also broader issues about public services. And as I say here, the, the, the broader idea of the breach of the social contract. So seeing good governance and um, m more broadly play, plays a role, right? So I think it is a much bigger picture than just culture. And then the supply side element of my argument is that basically we have all these social groups that some of them are the secure voting base of the far right, the sort of more racist, if you like, or far more extreme. And then all the others that are somehow annoyed with their personal situation and have various forms of insecurity. And they're all likely to go outside the mainstream. And then what you have, I argue, is the nationalism in the supply side, is that what these parties have done is found their own new winning formula. And that winning formula basically puts forward a civic, I call it a civic type of nationalism that says, we don't exclude you because you're, you have a different race or because of different ascriptive characteristics, but we exclude you because your ideology is contrary to ours. So they, they justify their anti-Islamism, not like anti-Semitism was justified in a racial way, but in saying your values are antithetical to our liberal democratic values. And they also put forward a welfare chauvinist um, type of narrative that, at, that attracts um, the economically insecure social groups. I'll show you some um, what I mean about that in, in a minute. So let's Let's look at, so I told you this before, I talked about this. So let's look at the economic, the, the, the importance of economic insecurity. So I'm arguing that within the context of this transnational cleavage, the economy also matters. How do I know this? Why am I making this argument? Well, I think that the dismissal, the common dismissal of the economic argument is based on three assumptions that are problematic. Number one, people on the cultural, with a cultural argument say that if the economic insecurity argument were to be correct, then we should only observe those who are economically worse off to vote for the far right. 
In the past, it used to be that the manual workers um, or the unemployed were the more likely voting base. But this is not the case anymore. Therefore, it is not economics that drive it. Secondly, unemployment at all levels and at the aggregate level should correlate with far-right party support. And we know that's not the case. Actually, um, Spain, second highest levels of unemployment in Europe and also youth unemployment, no far-right until just recently. UK, fairly low levels of unemployment, actually um, um, Brexit, I won't go into it. Um, so there's no correlation at the aggregate level. And then thirdly, they say, well, immigration is, you know, is, is actually an important predictor, unlike unemployment. Therefore, it's culture. So I want to I turn this on its head and say, well, actually, there is no reason to expect that it, it would be the economically worse off that would be the key voters. Actually, you, all you have to be is relatively deprived. So people feel that they are worse off either compared to themselves or compared to their neighbour. People feel insecure. It's about the risks and costs of potential uh, unemployment or the risks and costs of being worse off rather than simply just being at the lowest, um, at the lowest um, position. Secondly, we argue, and this is some work I've done with Tim Vlanders on this, and I'll show you in a minute, that actually unemployment doesn't correlate because labour market institutions function as mediating, um, as, as, as mediating factors. So the picture is not as clear-cut. And thirdly, as I said earlier, anti-immigration attitudes are motivated by economic considerations. So let me show you. So what we did here, so Tim and I did this work trying to see, okay, the un unemployment doesn't correlate at the aggregate level. But what about the risks and the costs of unemployment? What about when um, how people feel about the, 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 the basically the welfare state and to what extent these labour market institutions are able to, to mediate their worries. So here we looked at the interaction between the change in unemployment and unemployment benefits and how this correlates with far-right party support in the last European Parliament elections. And you see that it, it does, right? So in other words, we expect that when unemployment benefits are, are more generous, the unemployed are less likely to vote for the far-right. We also did that using various aggregate level Indicators here, we also did the same for all national elections in Western and Eastern European countries since 1991. And we see the same thing, right? So essentially where unemployment benefits are more generous, people, this is our causal mechanism, people are less worried about unemployment, so they're less likely to vote for, for parties um, that are on the far right of the spectrum. Now, what about immigration and this cultural... So, is immigration solely a cultural variable? We think not. Here, what we did um, is we looked at European social survey data. I think this is from 2014, but we've actually looked at European social survey data from all seven waves, and we find very similar things. So here, basically, we try to disentangle the two dimensions. Do you dislike immigrants because you think they are, they are a problem or they are bad for your economy, for your country's economy? Or do you dislike immigrants because you think that they are bad for your country's cultural life? And in fact, 
you can see here that the percentage of people thinking that immigration is a worry for the economy is greater than the percentage of people thinking that the immigration is a worry for the culture um, of a particular country. So both matter, I'm not saying they don't matter, but econ economic drivers are very important in understanding anti-immigration attitudes. Now we can also see it here. Let's see, what about whether these anti-immigration attitudes are drivers for far-right party support? And now what Essentially, what this tells you simply is also from European social survey data from 2014. Now, what this also tells you is that, take the blue line. It is those who believe that immigration is terrible for your country's culture. Zero. So it's really, really bad. Even they are far more likely, look at the blue line on the top, far more likely to vote for the far right if they also think that these immigrants who are terrible for your country's culture are also terrible for your country's economy. So there is a much stronger correlation here than we would expect. Same here, what you can also see, and this takes me back to my coalition argument between the different social groups. Here we can see basically um, how many people with concerns over cultural impact of immigration and how many people with concerns over the economic impact of immigration voted for the far right. And while those concerned with the cultural impact uh, this is the strongest predictor, numerically, those with economic concerns are more. So there is a substantial, numerically large group that is very worried about the country's economic, about the impact of immigration on, on, on the country's economy, and they are voting for the, for the far right. So essentially here we're arguing that without drawing that coalition, without being able to address them as well, these parties would never be, extend beyond their secure voting base. They would never be able to get the percentages that we are seeing. <clears throat> so, so far I've argued that the economy matters. And actually, paradoxically, immigration tells us that. Now I'm going to go into another part of my research and broaden that to good governance. So again, I want to show you that the ability to extend beyond the secure voting base makes these parties very successful. And here is work I've done with Sofia Vasilopoulou from the University of York, where we essentially look at both the national government and or satisfaction with the national government and satisfaction with the European Union as a broader aspect of the social contract. So, and there is increasingly a lot of work done on good governance. So again, the idea is feeling that your country has poor governance basically drives you to the anti-establishment, right? If you feel that the state is not delivering on its social contract obligations, you are more likely to vote far. Okay, so governance institutions are extremely important. As the, the, the primary contract we have is with our, with our own nation state, but we also have a contract with Europe because of the pooling of sovereignty and the conditionality associated with the EU. Now, as a Greek, I've seen this a lot as well with, I mean, and, and you know, here I am in Germany, I've seen this a lot. The Greek narrative is all Germany seeks to annihilate us economically with all these austerity measures and we can't support that. So out, we want out of the European Union. Okay, we didn't, they didn't take us out, but that's the argument, right? So th there, is, there is a sort of two level contract going on when we look at good governance in the perceptions, in the minds of the people. Now, what we wanted to do here is to say exactly, to, to look at this indirect mechanism more and to say, okay, 
Does then this perception of good governance, does that impact on whether people will vote for the, for the, for the far right? And we find that, you know, yes, it does. It does because we used here, we used data from the European um, um, Quality of Governance Index from 2013. So we do need to update that. But so far, what we have is we find that actually where the perception, so these are perception data, right? So where people believe that there, 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 there is quality of governance, okay, then they are essentially, those who believe that are less likely to vote far right. And again, secondly, where there is high QIs, where there is high quality of governance, then those who are not so staunchly anti-immigrant are less likely to vote far right. So it prevents, so what, what quality of governance does is essentially it prevents the coalition that I'm talking about. It prevents the coalition between the, the hardcore secure voting base who are the staunchly anti-immigrants who will vote far right regardless and those who are a bit angry but don't necessarily have very strong anti-immigration views, who are a bit sad about whatever the, uh, the establishment, who feel that the state has, has deserted them because it cannot, it cannot um, live up to its social contract, um, social contract obligations. So just to show you these two things here, we, we, show, we interacted, it's the quality of governance and approval of government's record to date. So those happy with and propensity to vote for the far right. So those who approve, who are happy, less likely to vote for the far right. And here, those basically with not so negative views on immigration, if they believe that there is high quality of governance, they are more, excellent, more likely to, um, sorry, less likely to vote for the far right. This is great because Hannah warns me I have 15 minutes left and that's really good because I had just been done here with my, um, my demand side slide. So, very briefly, people are insecure. They've always been insecure though, haven't they? Can you, name, can you name me any society where people are always happy, there's no discontent, nobody was ever unhappy, they love the government? No, of course, people are insecure and that is, that is a constant. But if people are insecure and that's a constant and then suddenly we have a new phenomenon, we need to extend beyond that, right? We need to find something else that has changed. Otherwise, sure, it doesn't, it tells us, yes, there is a demand opportunity, but it doesn't tell us when this opportunity will be seized. And it doesn't tell us which parties. I mentioned in the beginning that we have a really interesting variation. It doesn't tell us why the FPO and not the Bezador, right? It doesn't tell us why Golden Dawn and not the Greek Laos. It doesn't tell us why some countries should have that and why they shouldn't. I mean, Spain has huge levels of immigration, actually. Why did they just develop one now? It had economic crisis. It had all the ripe conditions there. Portugal, Portugal has no far right. Is that because everybody in Portugal loves immigration? Or are they all content? What about the Republic of Ireland? They also don't have far right. Maybe they're all super happy as well. So no, there is something else going on. And that I argue is in the supply. So if we look at this picture a bit more broadly that I showed you earlier, we will see that there is a massive increase of nationalism, but at the supply side level, right? Across different European party systems. But if you look at it a bit more carefully, you will see that the type of political party or far-right party that is, that is experiencing um, an increase in its support 
has commonalities, right? The, the Greek case that I told you about, the neo-Nazi, is an aberration. If you think, I don't know how familiar with these parties you are, but if you think a little bit of the ones that are successful, which ones did we say? So the Front National, now the Rassemblement National, my French, excuse it, um, right? So what, what, what is characteristic about this party? Marine Le Pen has tried to distance her, her narrative, her rhetoric from her father, right? She's now saying, no, 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 we've got nothing to do with this more extremist racism. She's embraced French republicanism and the ideas of laïcité. She's using secularism to actually support her arguments. If you look at the AfD, I've got um, some slides to show you in a minute. What are they saying? They're saying, no, it's all about German values, isn't it? It's all, there's nothing racist in that argument. There is nothing explicitly racist about the way they are arguing it. So me and my nationalism studies, I say, okay, how can I umbrella, make an umbrella explanation for this supply? So I call it civic nationalism. What these parties are doing is they're not putting forward a justification of insider versus outsider that draws on ascriptive features, which is the traditional far right. So ascriptive features meaning creed. Uh, blood, origin, descent, uh, things we are born with, even things such as, you know, language. This is the classic ethnic far right. No, no, they are just saying we will exclude not on the basis of this, but on the basis of ideology. So this is their one feature. And their other feature is their emphasizing the welfare state as important means of compensation. So you must have seen posters, um, uh, British jobs for British workers. It, it's funny, isn't it, that, that, that you know, a lot of the literature says the economy doesn't matter, and yet these parties themselves are doing nothing but focusing on the economy. The Front National had this whole um, unemployment is um, immigration uh, poster series as well. So this is, I think, a very big change that allows the parties to, to um, draw support beyond their secure voting base. So I just want to show you this in pictures. This is now from the Comparative Manifesto project. We have operationalized different forms of nationalism here based on some work that I've done with some colleagues, and I'm happy to talk about it um, in the Q&A or whenever, if you're interested. But it does tell us that while I think at the demand side level, insecurities are just what they used to be, an interchange between different forms, um, at the supply side level, we do see a, a, a very big increase in nationalism, especially very recently. Now, as I said, this has a lot to do. I thought you'd be interested. This is from here. So I thought, I thought it might be uh, interesting to look at. So as I said, this is precisely this whole civic nationalism idea. And what we do see is that these parties copy each other, right? That's another, they imitate each other. So one narrative makes the other party uh, pick up sort of a similar narrative. So this is here from the AFD. What does this, what do, does this have in common? I mean, what are they trying to say? They are saying, vote for us because of our values. They are saying, I mean, even the, the very sort of threatening, we must stop, stop Islamization, they see it as a sort of a threatening value. They present themselves as we are a liberal democratic country, right? And we want to have, we want to walk around our bikinis and go to the beach. Why is that a problem? Why do you want to impose your illiberal undemocratic ideas on us? So it's all about, it's using an exclusionist narrative, but dressing it up in a really inclusionist 
kind of ways, what we call civic nationalism, right? So emphasizing institutions, emphasizing, so this is all about liberal democratic institutions. It's not about things that we're born with, but it's about things that we can change. This makes this narrative very appealing because as we've seen from a lot of literature on the far right, the stigma of voting for a far right party does prevent a lot of people of, for, from opting for them, right? So now you think this normalization of this discourse makes a lot of people think, well, it, it's okay. Why is it wrong? I was, I was following the Brexit debate a lot in the UK and, you know, people were coming up on TV and everywhere on the radio and they were saying, well, why is it such a problem if we are concerned about immigration? Why are we racist if we want to wear our bikini on the beach? Why is that racism? So I think one big issue that I want to flag and I'm finishing in a few minutes and I will flag it in the conclusion as well is perhaps not so much what is more worrying in my from my work not in my opinion from my actual research is not so much that these parties are gaining these massive percentages because we saw earlier right so there is rise and decline but through this kind of narrative they're able to, to permeate mainstream ground so it is now a very very fine line between who is far right who is extreme right who is radical right and who is mainstream Right. And that fine line that we can see very much, for example, in the UK, but we can also see it in many different countries. And that is more difficult to tackle because essentially what everybody's now saying, well, why is it wrong to talk about immigration? Then what other parties should do to beat them is to become them. And that is the greatest fear. So this is the narrative we need to worry. Now, just to show you very briefly the other um, the other element, the, un the unemployment element in the, in the narrative, again, here is from the Comparative Manifesto project. We did work. I've got loads of parties, but I've just shown you two just for the sake of not tiring you. So here is from the Front National. Again, we see, look at that. So completely departing from the neoliberal economic policy to say we understand that there's a lot of social groups worried about their economic situation as well. So they, this is the, the straight black line is the welfare index. This party is now emphasizing a lot more this whole welfare state and importance of compensating voters. Okay, so tapping into different forms, different forms of insecurity from different social groups who worry about different things, okay? And here we can see the same with the FPO, who is in a coalition government, as I said at the moment, so it's doing really well. So just to conclude, uh, with my th last third, um, third point here today, which is why does this matter? Why are we here? Why are you all here? There's a lot of people here, so thanks for coming, but why do you care about this? A lot of people say, well, actually, the European Parliament elections are second-order elections, so they don't really matter. They're likely to inflate support for extremists because people vote with less of a heavy heart. You know, they're not worried that the parties are going to vote for will become government. However, these people legislate for us, so I'm very embarrassed that we have Golden Dawn neo-Nazis in the European Parliament actually legislating uh, for, for us, right? So it is, it is important. So what I want to argue here, I think the consequences are, are mixed. The picture is quite mixed, at least because we're talking about very, very different parties. So as I said in the beginning, people say, oh, one in four votes populist. Oh, populists are going to completely take over the European Parliament. Okay, but if you see populism as, as, as such a broad umbrella, then of course they're going to take over the, the, the European Parliament, right? So we are to an extent inflating this phenomenon a little. 
Also, it's because of many, many new parties as well. If we, I'll show you just some final polls in a second, but not all of them are expected to do really well. So some of the traditional classic far right that we're worried about are not meant to do as well as, as, as we think. But then there are new parties that have sprung up. And also, finally, the, the, the representation of these parties is divided between the different groups, which does mean there is a limit to the extent that they can actually work together, join together and do things, right? So there is, there is a mixed picture there about how important they are. I just want to show you some of what is expected, very briefly, some of what is expected to happen. I can't see my own slide here, so I'll show you from here. So this is the parties that are expected to, to, do, to do quite well. You see that we're talking about a massive umbrella, right? So the NVA in Belgium is supposed to do really well. That's the very more moderate. Some people will even call it a conservative party, right? So it's not really that far right. Um, okay, whereas... You know, you can see, I can't even see very well from there, but you can see, okay, so the AFD is expected to do fairly well. In the Netherlands, interestingly, the, the PVV, the Geert Wilders Party for Freedom, mm, you know, not so well. It's actually this forum for democracy, I don't know if you followed it, new, new kid on the block that is now supposed to take more votes. And this one is unaffiliated, right? So it is a mixed picture. Here as well, very sadly, the Golden Dawn, you, you can't read Greek, probably, no? So that would be the third, <laughs> that would be the third party on the, on the Greece, 9.9%. So they are still expected, despite, as I said, the fact that they are currently undergoing trial for murder and some of them are in jail. So they haven't really campaigned. This is without campaigning. Okay, so, mm, yeah, not great. Vox. Vox in Spain is, is expected to do fairly well. Also, new kid on the block we didn't have. We used to um, address Spain as a negative case in our research until very recently, so that's very worrying. Um, and obviously, the country that is dragging this whole result is Italy, with the Lega, but also with the five-star movement that is really neither left nor right. So I did this to make it more helpful and clearer. I've put in red what is expected to increase and I've left in black what is expected to decline or stagnate, right? And you can see there is a mixed, a mixed picture here. So Italy is, is the one that has got the highest, that, oh, almost, almost, is the one that's got the highest at 33.3%. Um, but as I said, in the Netherlands, Getfield is not, not expected to do so well. Very mixed picture. Is that picture so much different to what... You know, should we be really worried? Why is that a problem? Institutionally, as I said, makes different, different groupings. And it, it has been a tradition that precisely because they're nationalists, these parties don't cooperate very well between them, right? So there is a bit of a paradox in putting forward nationalist values by cooperating uh, in transnational institutions. It's a bit, it's a bit, uh, it's actually a bit, a bit funny. But I think what is more what is more at stake, and I want to close optimistically, is perhaps the idea of Europe itself and precisely the ability of these parties, as the small ones, the big ones, more the idea put forward everywhere in the media and everything we read, that it is the idea, the very legitimacy of Europe that is, here, that, that is at stake, right? The, the idea that if we know that these parties are doing really well, this is very worrying for the European Union. But 
This is from the latest Eurobarometer survey. And they're actually saying here that, you know, funnily enough, paradoxically enough, people who basically believe their country has actually benefited from the European Union, the number of these people has actually increased. So maybe there is a positive element there that despite the surge of Euroscepticism, actually when people will go to vote, they will also consider this broader idea of Europe. And I don't know, I'll leave it as a question to you, how we might reconcile the massive increase of Eurosceptic parties, but also some kind of increase in the idea that Europe is, um, is actually a good thing for, for our country. So just to conclude... Very briefly, I've, I've argued here that the success of these parties is, 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 the, is, the, is the product of the interplay between demand and supply side uh, dynamics. I think we need to approach the European Parliament question with a little bit of caution when we do see, and I was part of the Guardian project, and I think it's extremely important to study this phenomenon, but I also worry about these massive sort of, you know, generalizations. Oh, one in four people vote populist. Everybody now is a populist. Populism is going to take over the world. I think, yes, it is an extremely dangerous phenomenon. But I, I, as I said in, 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 in uh, earlier, I think the danger is actually, it's, it's becoming a self fulfilling prophecy. By saying how worrying it is in that way, actually what, what we're doing is we make it, we inflate it, we make it bigger because then we're trying to find a solution to it. I've heard two, two solutions to this, to this problem. One is we imitate the far right, right? So everybody now starts limiting immigration in, in the UK, the Labour Party, it's very trendy to, to talk about limiting immigration everywhere now. The solution is to become the far right. Or, I've heard the other way, we need to develop a progressive form, a left form of populism, which I'm also sceptical of, because if populism is all about the will of the people that doesn't understand that societies actually are divided between different social groups with often conflicting preferences, who you need to reconcile rather than completely polarize, I think that that might be dangerous as well. So I think that what is really at stake is the idea of Europe and the idea of the liberal democratic version of Europe that we live in. And I think we need to, we need to think very carefully about developing counter narratives that essentially will not mean that the mainstream will become either the far right or illiberal. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Daphne. Um, is anyone here a Hertie student in the room? Okay, great. Because four years ago, I was also a Hertie student and I was actually standing here giving a presentation of the results of my research. I'm sure Regina remembers. <laughs> and now I'm not in that role anymore. Now I work for Dahlia Research, which is a technology company. And at Dahlia, I help researchers get, um, get insights from people. And this is great because when I was at Herty, I wasn't very good with data or R. So uh, it's much better for me to help researchers and learn from them what they about the great things they find out in the data when they dig deep. So in my work, I have helped a lot of researchers, academic NGOs, think tanks, done a lot of surveys about populism in Europe, but also in China and in the United States. And I hope I can bring a couple of interesting insights to the table. Um, I'm trying to to get a bit of a higher level view of things that I learned um, because 
I think, um, but it's also the, the data that I'm sharing is publicly available. So I want to actually conclude my talk later with an invitation. You can access the data yourself and find sort of the deeper and more finer things. I learned a lot from the talk from Daphne, for example. Um, for example, the economic insecurity argument, I, 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 did, I thought it was gone, but I uh, got to a different point of view. So I want to share two insights for me that I found very um, surprising. One was um, from a survey project in, um, with 125,000 people in more than 50 countries. And we were interested in sort of not the idea of democracy and what people think about it or what are the ways to figure out if people, how populist people are or authoritarian. We were asking ourselves, looking at the democratic benefits, like the things that governments, democratic governments are supposed to deliver. Do people believe they get it from their governments? And we asked that in any country in the world, be it democratic or non-democratic. So, and that was, that finding really stunned me. So when we asked them when they feel, if they feel government is acting in their interest, which is kind of the essence of democracy, that you have representatives, we had a vast majority of people saying they rarely, the government rarely or never acts in their interests. And the interesting thing is also on the top, you have the countries, the top 10 countries where most people don't believe government acts in their interest. And at the bottom, um, the 10 countries where the discontent with, mm, with government is lowest. And interesting is the countries here on the top are, according to the Freedom House Index, the free countries, right? The more democratic countries. And at the bottom, in black, you have countries that Freedom House characterizes as unfree, right? So the discontent with governments in Saudi Arabia is much, much, much lower than in Portugal, Sweden, Denmark, Austria. Of course, you can debate what might have to do with public discourse. People in democracies may be just more critical of their government. People in non-democracies... Mm, they're not used to publicly criticizing their government. But the finding stands that the global public, sort of in a survey representing 80 to 90% of the global population, a majority thinks that governments are not delivering democratic benefits anymore. Further findings of this is go in the same direction. People also don't feel their voice matters, which is a question we asked. Um, they don't trust the news they read. And they also, I found that really interesting, they don't feel free to share political opinions in public. And the finding there was the same in sort of non-democratic countries. They, they felt more able to share their opinion than in many democratic countries. So there's obviously a lot of <laughs> surprise in the room, I'm sure. You can, again, you can look at the data and all the findings here. And if you want, you can also dig into the data yourself and help um, ask and help the public figure out why that is. The other, um, 
The other thing I wanted to share with you is from a study we did in Europe, in 28 European countries, and the United States. And this study was mm, very much more to the point or to the topic of authoritarianism and populism. So it was right after the Trump elections that we asking ourselves, okay, can this happen or do we, will we see more of that in Europe? So we did a comparative survey between the United States and Europe and we were asking all sorts of questions in the survey that we saw in the literature about authoritarianism, about populism, um, the economic insecurity arguments, the cultural arguments. We put everything in there. The data is publicly available and researchers more able than me have analyzed it and came to very, very interesting findings. Among them, for example, in the volume by Cass Sunstein, you have a, um, an article by Jonathan Haidt, which is one of my favorite um, political scientists, social psychologists. But the one thing that I found most um, surprising, and I'm not sure what to think about it, because it doesn't really answer the question that I initially had, sort of will we have, what, is, what explains populism? What's the, what's the why that Daphne tried to answer? It doesn't answer that, but it has a very interesting insight. So we asked a simple question, and we gave people just two options. Right? They, they're forced to choose between one of the two. One, our lives are threatened by terrorists, criminals, and immigrants, and our priority should be to protect ourselves. And the other option was, it's a big, beautiful world, mostly full of good people, and we must find a way to embrace each other and not allow ourselves to become isolated. Right, so two very extreme views, and we're forcing people to choose. One we call the protect worldview, the other the embrace worldview. And interestingly, the protect worldview is roughly shared by 50% of the people. 50% of the people choose it. And the embrace worldview is chosen by another 50% of people. So we perfectly... It's a bit different in Spain. In Spain, 70% of people are on the embrace side. Really? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is when we look at those two groups of people and we look at whom they vote for, we find this. So on the left side, you have the people with the protect worldview. And you see the parties up here, the Front National, the AfD, the Lega Nord. They overwhelmingly have a voter base that had this, has this protect worldview. So he's lucky. And on the other hand, on the Embrace Worldview sites, below you have Podemos in Spain, you have the Labour Party, here you have the SPD. Right, so the parties more to the left, they're overwhelmed, they have a voter base that has more this Embrace Worldview. Again, sort of this is not sort of an explanation of the why, but one finding that really surprised me that I would like to show you as an invitation to dig deeper into the data, because I think there's much more to find. You can find it publicly available on a platform for data scientists. It's called Kaggle, K-A-G-G-L-A, and you will find it under um, Trump and European populism. Right, so I'm really excited to, to discuss some of these findings with you, discuss Daphne's finding most of all, because they should be at the center. And yeah, I hope I could, um, I could share some things with you that could you also use in your own research or in your classes or inspire you to, to give it deeper and help explain populism. Thanks.
After the two presentations, we have now time for a discussion from you, the audience, with the two presenters. So I would like to open the Q&A session. If anyone has a question, would know something more about the specific aspect of the presentation of one of the two presentations, the floor is now yours. Christian Flaxland from the Hattie School. Thanks to both of you for these interesting presentations. I have one a starting question to Daphne. Could you elaborate a bit more on your view on the dynamics of these changes and what is driving these changes? So is it changes in the welfare state that is perhaps driving these feelings of uh, discontent? Um, I mean, there's some analysis for the UK that would show that. Um, or is it um, more like general economic developments, I don't know, financial crisis, or is it perhaps even increasing wealth and somehow then related to that an increase in polarization society so people can afford or they, they, they ask for more, they're more discontent um, than they used to be in the past. So perhaps some considerations on the dynamics driving uh, these changes. Thank you. Okay, this works. Yes, yeah. This works. Okay, great. Thanks for your thanks for your question. So I think, I guess what I was saying. So there are different levels, right? Um, so at the demand level, many of these insecurities are constants. So the the policy level does change that, right? So yes, I think some of them are driven by different policies. So when the welfare state has changed, or we saw that with Brexit, but we also see it in other different other countries, where the welfare change, state changes and it's not as protective, that does play a role. But that's the, not the only answer. And that's where I think then we need to also look at different countries as, as well. So for some countries, it's welfare state changes. For other countries, it might be some, some other. Um, we know that economic, um, economic crisis doesn't, correlate at, at, you know, at the aggregate level. But if you look at Greece, for example, it is actually the quality of governance that has declined, right? So I think it's the interplay of this. And if we want to answer about specific countries, we also need to look at specific, you know, changes. But yes, our work shows that welfare state policies play an important role in many countries. Even in Scandinavia, where the welfare state is big, actually changes in the way that the inclusion of different people and who is included has played a big role. Uh, hello. Uh, I would like to get um, an assumption on the Jobic party that has recently disintegrated from the EPP. Um, and what role is it going to play in the future and in which kind of um, European party is it going to be part of? That would be very interesting. Thank you. Okay, great. So Jobbik is an interesting is an interesting case. Actually, it's another of those extreme parties that I would put closer to the Golden Dawn category. Now, what's interesting is that it you know it lost to Fidesz essentially. So again, what we see is the center right moving to the authoritarian right, taking over the extreme right. So I I don't know what the future is for any party because I, I I refrain from trying to tell the future. But it's an in, it tells me it's a very interesting pattern of how center right and and far-right basically interact. Eastern Europe, I do have to flag here, that is, is, is in many ways distinct from Western Europe. Okay, and that is because of the different historical kind of um, developments we've had, but also this, perhaps this embrace or this 
this acceptance of of you know of authoritarianism that might might be different that is driving different that that, that is basically based on different dynamics i was i i gave a talk at um, the university of montenegro of all places a while ago and one of the questions that i was asked was well you know people here believe that it's okay to trade off their their freedom for security which actually takes us very nicely into your slide about protect so i don't know if that is a mentality that is more pronounced in eastern european countries but i think that is also an important driver which tells us that the center might take more over you know from the extreme uh, Sebastian Levy from Free University Berlin. Thanks, uh, you two, for your interesting talks. One question that came up in my mind um, again was, um, I mean, this talk is framed about populism, and you both talk about populism, but you both also talked about right-wing populism. You didn't talk about left-wing populism. And one problem I have with the term of populism is that it's really fuzzy, and that you actually talk about very spe specific effects, for example, nationalism or yeah, I don't know, um, right-wing attitude in general, which would, or like what is part of the protectionist attitude. And um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think, how do you think, why didn't you talk about left-wing populism? What, what do you, is it, is it even useful to talk about populism and maybe not, it's more useful to talk about nationalism or, I don't know, to have the terms more specifically? Thanks. That's exactly the conversation we had uh, a few minutes before the talk started. So I will agree with you 100% that it's fuzzy. I will go further to actually say that it's it's unfalsifiable and tautological, right? Because really in a democracy, everybody talks about the people. And sure, they make this distinction between the people and the elites. But really, if we wanted to at a stretch, every single party that functions in our democracy can be somehow manipulated to fall into a populist category. So I personally agree that it's, it's much more useful analytically to talk about the far right, and that's why I continued kind of, kind of, you know, left the, the populism, to, to talk about the far right or the far left, because also I fear that populism normalizes um, normalizes this kind of, of, of discourse as well. We don't call them, you know, far right anymore. No, they're populist, so that's a bit more, uh, more appealing. Having said that, I, I do think that, you know, there is an element of... I found William Riker's book... That I don't know if people are familiar. It's funnily enough something not really used in academia now. I haven't seen it in analysis of populism that much, whereas I find it really useful. He juxtaposes populist democracy from liberal democracy. And he argues that precisely this difference is that populism, by claiming to be the the will of the supporter of the will of the people, bypasses liberal democratic checks and balances. In that definition, then we might find, you know, something useful, maybe the support of authoritarianism or the support for basically rather the, the, the rejection of, of liberal democratic processes. It might help us there. But I agree. Now, why I talked about right wing populism in particular is because that's what my basic most my research is, is on. So I chose to talk about about that. Because um, I think it was directed to you too. Thank you. Patricia Springborg from the Centre for British Studies around the corner. Um, some of you might have heard this query before, uh, because we had an interesting panel last week, I think it was. Um, look, the problem with a lot of this analysis, from my point of view, and I'm not an empirical political scientist, although I am a political scientist, um, 
is that it treats the epiphenomena and not the phenomena. So everybody feels, okay, voting's changed, parties have changed. What they don't see, which I think a lot of the people see, especially those who are least protected, is the world has changed. Liberal democracies are no longer privileged. In the 1950s and 60s, in the heydays of liberal democracy, there were 16.5 people for every, working for every person on benefits. There are now 2.7 people in most Western countries working for every person on benefits. And it's predicted to be um, two to one by 2025. Okay, six countries in the world are going to double their population by 2050. Indonesia and the five poorest African countries. Africa reached a billion people in 2009, but it doubles its population every 27 years. The world has completely changed a lot. Nobody helped Africa when they had a chance to make it a good place to live. They just raped and pillaged, no matter who the colonizers were. And they did that for most of the third world and now the developing world. And now it's getting its own back. Um, the population increases are phenomenal. Where are all those billions of people going to go? I mean, if you ask me, the Brits are just going to make a run for it. So what do you say about the phenomena and not just the epiphenomena? Splendid. Thank you very much. That's a really interesting question. So I think, absolutely, that it's not I think, it's, it's obvious, right? The world has changed. But also it's not the first time the world has changed. So there's a massive literature on industrialization and how that basically affected the social, the technological, the political, you know, I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole study of nationalism is based on Gellner's book on industrialization, right? So it's not the first time that the world changes. And there are some wonderful theories. I was reading David Soskis very recently that try to make, you know, broader, make some, some broader arguments about precisely how now the world is changing to different, different levels of education information, technology. There's a ton of things we could say about technology. Not my area, it's not what I do, but I agree with you. What I think is interesting is that every time the world changes, we have the, the result, the, 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 the outcome that we're trying to explain is different. And what I find interesting is the puzzles. Yes, the world has changed, but it, it's not, so, so what? The world has changed, but there's not a linear picture there for me to explain. It's a varied picture. The world had changed years ago. We still had some authoritarian parties, some far-right parties, not others. Some countries ex ex exhibit this, some countries don't. So the, the world changes in varied ways and the outcomes are varied. So that's, that's what I am interested in in my research. So at my research, if you like, is a snapshot of how some of these changes, which might relate to what we heard earlier about the different labour market dynamics or different flows of immigrants, different um, also life expectancy, different types of how age groups are incorporated in the labour market. I want to, I'm, I'm more interested into how this explains variation rather than a linear result. So why are all these changes manifesting themselves in different patterns of voting behaviour in Greece versus Spain versus Ireland versus Portugal, which are the countries that, that, that um, were damaged so much by the economic crisis why is it Italy 
why is Italy now the country, the one country that is driving this phenomenon so massively? If Europe is changing at similar levels, we should have been experiencing this in similar ways. So yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I try to snapshot that and try to find the variation within different patterns of support. You had a question? Um, yeah, I, I was just wondering if you've done any comparative studies as well with, say, um, Asian democracies and um, whether you can share any of that. I wish. No, the, the quick, very quick answer to you is no, I've done um, most work on Europe and a little bit on the US. Hi, my name is Maximilian Gerke. I'm a student here at Hurdy. And <clears throat> you mentioned before that the European parties they, and the, um, the factions in European Parliament are quite divided and that they um, cannot seem to merge together to one big party. And from, my, from what I know, they do agree a lot on the cultural aspect of their politics, but they disagree a lot on the economic uh, aspect of their politics. Do you think that fits well with your, with your argument or do you think that's something we, can, we, we, we have to look into further? Thank you so much. That's another really interesting question. Both. The, the two things you mentioned are not mutually exclusive. So I do think it fits with my argument. Absolutely. So some have got this neo... Uh, continuing their neoliberal economic policy and others are far more becoming far more protectionist. But obviously that doesn't mean we shouldn't look into it further. I think we should most certainly look into it further. What I want to add though is I think that they do also differ in terms of their cultural policies as well. And perhaps if we see that on a spectrum, I don't like to do that, but just for clarity, if we see it on a sort of, you know, less extreme to more extreme spectrum, um, that's why many of these parties are also unaffiliated, like the Golden Dawn. So some of them say we need to exclude immigrants um, indiscriminately. So we need to get them all out. And if they don't, you know, if they're not Greek and not of Greek blood, off they go. But others say, oh no, we, you know, we need to just exclude those who might um, be involved in crime or whatever, right? So conditional on something. So they also, they also differ um, in terms of their cultural. I think they differ on, on both dimensions and both in kind and degree. Can we have one more question here? Well, uh, this thought's been lingering in my head for a couple of weeks now, and it's after the mess that Brexit turned out to be. Uh, I, the the discourse has changed. Uh, the, the, it's not uh, not talked about. It's not been talked about anymore about Euroscepticism, but uh, Eurosceptic parties that used to be Eurosceptic parties, they have now embraced. And and you mentioned it. It was like a positive thing that you now Europe is still held as 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 a, as a value the, the the concept of europe is still held as a as a good thing but it's it's maybe the the this uh, parties that were french parties now are becoming more mainstream they're trying to destroy europe from within so maybe it's not that a good thing yes absolutely i think euroskeptic parties have always ranged in the Euroscepticism as well, right? So we had Euro-rejects versus soft Euroskept. So it's not, it's not new that some of these parties want to reform and some of these parties want to, to destroy. Um, I think you're right that Brexit has been, has been seen by many as a, as a what not to become, which sadly it's, you know, both the countries I, the country I live in, the UK, oh dear. The country I come from, Greece, also oh dear. So I, this phenomenon is very much 
happening there. So I agree. I, I hope that you're not right and that this doesn't mean that they will destroy Europe from within, but I do worry that that kind of Euroscepticism... Now, we're talking less about rejection, but also, as I said, it's paradoxical that they will get so many votes and actually oppose Europe from the European platform. Um, so th the answer is where to find a narrative that will contradict this type of Euroscepticism. Yeah. One question in there. Thank you for the interesting talks. I'm wondering how does um, white nationalism, the most recent example of which is Forum for Democracy, um, play into your supply side argument, i.e. the um, civic nationalism? So how do, how do you reconcile um, the rising white nationalism with the civic nationalism argument? That's an excellent point. I don't so far because this this one is actually Forum for Democracy. I think is a really really interesting, very new example. It's super new, and I haven't done, I'm honest, any research on it. I've only just read, you know, what is going on, and it, it is very interesting because it doesn't it doesn't fit in the argument, right? So what we have, the patterns that at least until now that we have is Eastern Europe tends to be the more white nationalist, right? Or we see it in some of the extreme groups in the US, like Stormfront, right? Or Australia, these countries have these marginalized white supremacist organizations. And then in Western Europe, you have the reformed, the revamped, the moderate, you know, the, the populist far right. Maybe I would bet on if these parties didn't fare so well. The alternatives are coming up, kind of contradicting them. Like Herd Wilders has been stagnating and he didn't come first and in 2017 either and in the previous EP elections didn't do as well as expected. So perhaps it's, you know, it's like a counter to the success, but I haven't done any research. And it is really interesting. I was thinking of the same thing when reading on Forum for Democracy. Thank you. Hi, my name is Vera. I'm a student here. Um, talking about the European elections, um, you showed this very interesting connection between unemployment benefits and a populist vote. Um, so now you see the Social Democrats campaigning for kind of a social union and uh, so on and so forth. But is that really the solution uh, the people want to hear when they actually want welfare state benefits and the populace say, hey, you can only get that on a nas like nationalist context. So what would be your yeah, policy recommendation to so social democrats, for instance? Oh, save, save the hardest for, for, for last. So I'm a political scientist and I refrain from policy recommendations to political parties. No, but, but I, th I think you're right. And now, right, so there is a social benefit element there. And precisely, a lot of these parties are emphasizing it. But within this context of the collective goods of the state and who should have access, right? So there is an important nationalist component. It's not about, oh... I'm worried about unemployment. It's more about, I'm worried about unemployment and all the immigrants are taking my benefits away from me. 
So the argument is complex. And if, th if that's the case, right, I'm brainstorming, then the solution would be what? To suggest to social democrats to also adopt an anti-immigrant narrative? I would say, no, no, that's, you know, that's, 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 not, that's not a good idea. So I think that they, they have essentially a catch-22, right? Because their rhetoric is not appealing. I, I think that we need to inform people more about education. I sorry, educate people and inform them more about exactly what the far right is and about exactly how immigrants are not necessarily taking away your benefits, right? So I would go a step further back and I would say you need to address this at its, at its core, which is raise awareness about really the extent to which the welfare state and immigration play a role. But yeah, difficult. One question here, and I saw a hand. Oh, here is the second hand. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a question to Niklas on your um, sort of extreme question, um, the, uh, the embrace versus the protection, or perhaps the fear question, because um, that seems to be linking also the two presentations, like this, this fear factor. Fear has always been around. Um, and the question would be, do you have any long, like time series data on this kind of stuff? So has, has the level of fear increased also in view of these larger tra geopolitical trends, like the relative decline of Europe, um, the United States, um, linked with individual fears, like, cause this also ties into the welfare state argument, which is more like then translation into individual lives, but this more geopolitical, uh, um, uh, context in terms of economic, also military, power and um, then, then, of course, the mass migration movement as part of the sense of, 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 of being feeling threatened, you know, the big exchange arguments and so on. Can, do you see any qualitative change in the data over time in that um, as a background factor? Thanks for the question. So there is time series data going back to 2015. Like, we don't exist for that long. We were found at the end of 2013. <clears throat> And it's also available at the Bertelsmann Foundation, the EU opinion study. And you can also check out the data and download it. Um, I haven't analyzed that specific aspect. Has fear increased or decreased, to be honest? I can, also, I can only point at other research. And there's one very interesting, one of my favorite authors, and he's also worked with our data. The, his name is Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if he's widely read in this kind of context. He's got a couple of great TED Talks too. And he's saying, um, and that's very controversial among political scientists, he sees himself more as a political psychologist, that um, what explains what people vote or sort of the recent rise um, of authoritarian populist movements is um, to be found sort of in our moral intuitions. So that people gravitate more towards certain moral standpoints that they have intuitively before they see new facts, before they form a political opinion, I vote for this in that party, they have an innate moral sense that gravitates around sort of unfairness, harm, or um, sort of purity, which is something that you see a lot with sort of more right-wing or more conservative, more conservative moral matrix. That's a lot about sort of purity, it's a lot about um, sort of um, justice and harm and care also play a role, but it's sort of a different moral matrix before you see facts. That's why you don't necessarily always able to convince people that have fear 
with facts, right? So my, I would speculate that, referring to that, that sort of this innate fear doesn't necessarily, hasn't necessarily changed, but recent developments might activate it. There would be an explanation. So there can be developments that activate this fear. Look, right now it's just something happening. And that makes people receptive to more populist or more extremist positions. One question there. Hi, uh, my name is Kethra and I'm from, uh, I study at Humboldt University. Uh, my question is quite similar to the question he asked. Is, uh, you didn't talk about the social media role and how populists are using that, especially like, uh, I mean, I was uh, doing a research on League and Art and uh, I was seeing the pictures and uh, during their campaign and all those figures they were, uh, they were posting and uh, in their websites they were uploading. So I want to know, like, how could it also uh, contribute in uh, concerns of uh, common public, like, towards insecurity that they feel and uh, other things that, I mean, the fear that they have. So how it's contributing. And one last and quick question on, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, you mentioned in uh, your latest article on, uh, you talked about the ideologies of populist uh, parties that you said mostly Western uh, European countries have this, uh, uh, their ideology of exclusion is based on this uh, uh, nationalism and based on uh, uh, intolerability of uh, uh, these groups, but not on nativism. You mostly focused uh, on Eastern Europe, that nativism ideology or so. But, I mean, the support of AFD with uh, Pegida and some of their agendas and some of their uh, politics and also some of the statements by members uh, I see more also these uh, uh, exclusion uh, of uh, different groups based on race and uh, nativism. So how do you explain that, please? Thank you. Great. Okay, two questions. So let me separate them. So your first question on the social media, I think that's a really important question. The reason why I didn't mention it is because I haven't done actually explicit comparative research on it. So I didn't want to present something, but we did do a lot of work um, looking at social media and generally the, the party's sort of agendas, media, you know, whatever, um, online presence for the golden dawn with my colleague Sophia. And in fact, what I would argue is, and it links to the question about how the world has changed, I think this type of technology basically, basically allows the message to become much more quickly spread and much more broadly spread. And I will give you an example. So I wrote, I did a lot of work on the Golden Dawn and I wrote this article, that's a couple of years ago, on the Golden Dawn in a Greek newspaper. Okay, which... So I went to sleep, that was in the afternoon, that's great. I wake up in the morning, I have an email from some guy from Stormfront in the US telling me that I represent, we are from Stormfront and we represent the Golden Dawn in the United States and we are going to bring swear words, swear words, swear word uh, people to, to teach you lessons and things like that. And they posted, and then what they did is they posted sort of my university webpage all over their social media, so Stormfront, yeah, and then they said things. So it was unbelievable how quickly it spread and the amount and you know you can go to it if you are interested the, the comments that people leave underneath and how quickly people become engaged you know I don't know if it if it is 
a driver in its essence. But I think it certainly helps to spread the message and to make these groups, again, funnily enough, that it's the transnational dimension of the nationalist movement that I think that they play, um, they play a very important role in. Now, your second question about um, how do I reconcile it? So, so yes, I, I disagree, to, 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 to disaggregate it a second, I disagree with the literature that basically identifies these parties as nativist. I think that nationalism can be both ethnic and civic, and nativism is more the, the, the ethnic form. Um, but again, a political party is not a single entity, right? So it consists of many different people. And I know that in many, look, I mean, look, the Front Nationale case I know quite well, look at how divided, especially when Marine Le Pen, you know, took over, the entire other uh, element of the party and the narrative. So of course you're going to have people in the parties that will talk fascist. Of course you're going to have people in the parties that will disagree with the main line of the party. Um, so I guess what we look at when we look at manifestos or you know, their official online presence is the official line of the party. And there are certainly aberrations to that. And that's why I think it's some parties are still having a lot of trouble uh, persuading people that, yes, you know, we are not, we are not extremists. Because a lot of people say, well, there's still, there's still a stigma, you know, you're still far right, whatever you say. So take it with a pinch of salt. Okay. Thank you very much. Then with this, we uh, close our event for, for tonight. And I would like to take... First, the opportunity to thank our two uh, speakers for their interesting talks and to the audience for the exciting um, discussion. And I would also like to advertise our next event, which is on the 25th of April, where Philip Mauner from the University of Bremen will come here to talk about his new book on the political economy of populism, where he sort of proposes a, also a political economy that is an economic explanation for the rise of populism. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.